Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. Uh, we have a episode I'm very excited about. This is something I've been bouncing around in my head for a while, but before I get into it, all of that, I want to first thank the Grinding Coffee Company for being a wonderful sponsor for us. They're a uh, minority-owned, LGBTQ-ran uh, coffee company that um, likes to support gamers. They've been supporting us for a long time. They also provide Hobbs all of his coffee, which is great. Um, Tay and I are not big coffee drinkers, but we love their support, love what they what they do in the community, and also supporting Hobbs's caffeine addiction is a great thing too. Also, just want to mention to everybody, uh, the Goblin Lore has five year. We, we have our five. We're working on our five year uh, episode. We actually probably by the time this goes up, we'll have hit roughly the the five year anniversary. But we're working on some things. Um, so it'll, the episode itself will probably come out. We'll come out in in a few weeks. Probably we'll when we have a better idea of the exact time, we'll we'll let everybody know. But for that, we are asking for help. Uh, we'd like the community to to send us short recordings or what you know about what the show means to you. Um, it's something we. The, the three hosts are going to get together and talk about what the show means for us, but we'd like our community as well to, to contribute to that conversation. So if that's something you want to do, please record something. We have our email in the show notes. Uh, I believe it's goblinlore.gmail.com. It's, it's in the show notes. If you want to send it there, that would be awesome. Thank you. Um, and then we do some introductions. Uh, I'm Alex Newman. Found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler. Uh, for, we're going to do our introductions and answer our question this week, and then I will try to explain this topic because I don't know. I still don't know that I have the right uh, great words for it. But uh, Hobbs is not here. We have a wonderful guest. But I, I, why don't I finish my introduction? Found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler, and my pronouns are he him. And our burning inquiry this week, um, we wanted to start, it's going to be a male topic, so we wanted to kind of start with, you know, a favorite mechanic, or maybe something that's a really mechanically centric card, or male card. So it kind of to, to define that, you know, Vorthos are people who love the story and the flavor. For for males, it's about the mechanics, but really liking how the mechanics work together. And I think for me, one of the best cards that I've ever found to explain that is a card called Marshalling Cry from Future Sight. It's a sorcery, gives your creatures plus one plus one until end of turn, and vigilance because it's a, it's a white sorcery. But it has both cycling and flashback. So you can cast it like normal and flash it back if you want. But you can also cycle it, discarding the card, and then flash it back. And because so cycling and flashback are playing this interesting um, tandem there, these two mechanics sort of working together to let this card do some kind of a lot of different things, depending on how you want to use it. And that's, for me, a card I think of all the time. I don't know why I love this card, but it's it, it's kind of what made me realize that, understand that whole Mel aspect for myself. So I'm going to hand this off to Taya. Want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Taya. Pronouns are she, her, or they, them. I'm Taya Transcends on Twitter. And I'm going to go with my favorite Malthos card of all time, which is uh, Felden of the Third Path. You know, it has a whole, you know, it's kind of the, the whole card is built around a story and flavorfully and mechanically, it works perfectly with the story of Felden trying to bring back his um, deceased wife and trying to make a simulacrum of her. Uh, he brings things back from the graveyard till end of turn, uh, artifact things, but he never quite gets it right and they don't last. Uh, if you've never read the story, I highly recommend reading it. And he walks through all the colors of mana and tries to, you know, through each of their colors, the lens of each color, look at bringing back something from the dead and how all of them or none of them can do it perfectly. And they all have a drawback. And, you know, it, it's learning about how each of the colors of magic um, functions uh, at a time when, and the history of Dominaria, the color theory was relatively new. So it's a very Melthos card, and it's one of my favorite cards of all time. Uh, with some of the best flavor text, she will come back to me. It's just all around a great card. Um, can't, you know, brings a tear to my eye uh, when they, they released it and re-released the story from anthologies with it. That's a really good pick. And yeah, and I love the, the Melthos. And that story kind of fits well with what we're going to be talking about. But before that, 
Reinhardt. We have Reinhardt back. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks. I am once again honored to be on this wonderful podcast with Alex and Taya. And uh, we're going to be talking about, yeah, like, like Alex said, you know, a combination of magic card mechanics and story and everything that ties them together. And so I was thinking about what what card I was thinking really hard about what card I would select. And I, I think I landed on um, Jaya's immolating Inferno for kind of a real backwards reason and a very personal reason. So uh, uh, for anyone who doesn't know Jaya's immolating Inferno is, I think it's a red, red X or XX red. One of those uh, combination uh, costs. Um, uh, I think it's a legendary sorcery from Dominaria 2018. Um, and it's kind of like a giant, giant fireball. And it originally was created to commemorate the the sparking of Jaya Ballard um, at the hands of Joda when he uh, broke a magic mirror over her face. And... Uh, and the reason why I feel that it fits well into this conversation is it, well, it's cheating. It's because I use that example, that card of what, you know, I, I sat down when I was writing the Brothers War stories, the, the present day stories. And I said, I really wanted to do something big. And I have Joda and I get to use him. So. What if we call back to Jai's Emulating Inferno, but let's really get into how the card really works. And uh, so if you recall, in during the Brothers' War, there's a scene in which Joda and Elspeth ride out to meet this Phyrexian behemoth, and they don't really have a plan. And uh, Joda takes out this, this kind of amulet. And he says, this is a spell from Jaya. You need to help me cast it. And that is a legendary spell. And a legendary spell requires you to have some kind of legendary uh, thing on the battlefield in order to be able to cast it. So in this case, Joda had Elspeth and was able to help coordinate and cast the spell. And I really thought that was fun. That was fun to be able to try to capture the function of the card within the story. And I, I can't help myself. I really like doing that. <laughs> so that, that's my pick. That's a good pick. I, I recognize that in yes, the writing sure when you did. did it too. And it was really cool that, you know, you got to bring in that legendary spell aspect to it. Uh, and, uh, I'd love to see more legendary spells in it. Yeah, the uh... wow, that that's okay. That's really cool, and again, like fits really well with with the topic. So I've I've talked to both of you to some degree about what we want to talk to talk about tonight. And I've actually mentioned it in in a previous recording, and I'm still trying to figure out a good concise way to describe it. But basically, the the, the topic is something I've, I've kind of had in my head for a while. And it's, it's this idea that, so as a magic is a game. And so as part of a game, we have a lot of different game mechanics and some of them have flavorful representations in the world. Mana and the colors of mana is, is one. These exist in the world, but we know of them as game mechanics. So we know how they work as game mechanics, but the people in the world I wanted to kind of talk about the idea of wh- how would the people in the world understand these things and, and how would that sort of translate? And, and I think at least for folks who are playing around when I was, you know, kind of came back to, to magic, I think one of the big examples I have that we can kind of start here and go into some other directions. Cause I know um, we've got a bunch of stuff, but I, I, I want to talk about on Theros. When we first went to Theros, we see gods. I think that that's the first time we really had gods printed as a card type. And because of the way magic works, of course, we have five gods in the first set, one for each of the colors. 
and then we go through the next two sets and we get five more gods in each of the two color pairs. And then there was this in the story, there was this um, uh, missing God. You know, there, there was this uh, whole idea that there was no green uh, red God. But in the story, oh, why am I blanking on the satyr? I'm sorry. What are you saying? Thank you. <laughs> Xenagos. Xenagos was a planeswalker, decided to come back and become a god because there was a whole bunch of parts for his story. But he decided this is what he wanted to do. And so he became a god and it threw all sorts of chaos and it caused a lot of story things as the story happens. You know, there, there's going to be people doing things with different motivations. But that idea for me, um, I don't know, I, it was one of those weird little frustrating moments where you get mad because people are wrong on the internet sort of things where people were like, well, of course, I, I would know in the world that there is this god that's missing. Of course, Zenagos is going to become the god. But it's like the people who live here have 14 gods that they've dealt with that for from how I was looking at it, it's like they're not necessarily going to understand that there's exactly five colors and that everything has to be balanced in these five colors. Because again, from a gameplay perspective, Wizards has tried that with Torment and Judgment, where one set was weighted into black and the other sets were weighted into white and green, and it just it, it threw things off in balance and it wasn't great from a gameplay standpoint. So whenever we end, especially into in today's environment with a lot of commander and more casual play people play all sorts of colors they enjoy all sorts of things so when they're going to make something big like a god a cycle of gods they're going to make one in each color because they want to represent all five colors they want to give people those tools those things to play with just as game pieces as a game but that doesn't mean that in world that this stuff has to exist that way i mean it generally will because that's what the way the game is but so do you does this make sense you two do you have any <laughs> any ideas kind of from from that point yeah you know it makes a lot of sense and it's we see we see the representation of this world through the lens of game balance you know we don't see what it would look like you know in a necessarily functioning society and maybe we'll get a chance to see what'll happen post you know March of the Machine when we eventually go back to Ravnica after a couple of the guilds were devastated and we'll see what that imbalance does to the guild structure in a plane where the that balance was critical to how the plane functioned. And it was very very well known, you know, that this balance was present and part of daily life on that plane. So, you know, at some point, maybe we'll see how that plays out in the story. But I, I think by necessity of how the story works within the rules of the game, we do see this as a balanced presentation, you know, pretty much everywhere we go. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea that we could see um, how Ravnica, because that was one of the other examples I had from around that time, a little, a few, a few years earlier than that, but. Um, more than a few years. Sorry, that was before the gap when I stopped playing. But the original Ravnica, to not, I don't want to do too much on that one necessarily, unless y'all have more to add. But originally on Ravnica, there was only nine guilds that everybody knew about because the Demir was the hidden guild. They're the, you know, the spy guild, and that. So that was their thing. That, in part of that story, they became public, and that threw a bunch of things off. But would have had a similar thing where it's like for folks on that world, there's nine guilds. And that's not something you would question just living in your world. There's, I mean, maybe you might question if the guilds are doing the right stuff or, you know, say, for example, if you're in a place that has two political parties, you might be like, is this enough? Is this really going to represent everybody? And there's debates about that. But you wouldn't say, well, there should have been five because that would hit all of the colors or something like that. But I think the, yeah. uh, that sense it, there's an interesting metaphor that can be made, right? When you're watching a movie or even reading a book and you're seeing how the plot, you know, unfolds. Um, a lot of people who are viewing or reading can say, oh, you know, I know this is how this is going to end. I can see the story structure in place. And if they obey the story structure, this and this and this will happen and fall into place. And a lot of times it does happen. And sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, the, the reader in this case is the player and the player sees that, 
and the player knows because they read the articles or they've just spent a lot of time with different sets that the the game designers do strive to have a balance because a, a balanced um, kind of set um, often is more fun. It plays well. In limited, you have a lot more options. Um, and so like there's a kind of assumption that, oh, of course it's going to be like that when the assumption is just kind of what has happened before and what tends to happen, not something that has to happen. So, um, you know, the, the red green God missing red green God. I mean, people, yes, could, could have said, Oh, eventually of, or of course that character is going to be that, or eventually there will be, but that comes from uh, a point at which you have kind of outside knowledge to the world of the story or the world of the game, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and it's been a while and I, I honestly, I, I was playing the game and I paid some attention to the story, but I wasn't as deep into it then as I was later. So I can't say for sure, but I don't believe the whole idea that Xenagos was going to become a god, I don't think was played as a surprise. Mm-hmm. I think it was he was going to pursue it. Elspeth and others were trying to stop him. But I don't know that it was supposed to be some big reveal to the players. And I think and maybe if that had been the case, it could have been like, well, this isn't a surprise to the players because we can see the gap. But I think it what frustrates me is less people saying, well, it's not a surprise to us because we could see that gap, but maybe more of saying, talking about it like it was some plot hole or something. Like, right. And that's just, it's like, well, that's, that was the point of the story. It's not a plot hole that the story has a plot, that it's going in a direction and it gets there. But, so yeah, and I mean, and I don't know if, if another example that might be easy, and this is just a, another game entirely, but when I used to play, dun- I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons growing up, and that was another thing, just trying to explain, particularly when I was, teenager explaining to my teenage friends who had never played the game ideas that things like levels don't exist in the game that is entirely a construct of the of of the game mechanics Um, you have characters who are more experienced than others but that isn't an actual in-game mechanic and even things like a uh, character class isn't necessarily an you know straight analog in there you you have like a fighter class could be a guardsman, a soldier, there's a hundred different ways that a person could have those sort of, from a mechanical standpoint, those pieces use it and use that differently in the fiction. And so I think that's a big part of where this has been bounced out of my head forever. So with that set, I think that's a good set. I know you, Reinhard, you brought a bunch of good stuff to talk about some of these mechanics and, and or not, sorry, not the mechanics, but to go into the story a little bit to just say like, how much do, how much does this, do the citizens of this world know? And I, I, I know. And I think it depends on which plane you're talking about. Um, certainly Dominaria has had the bulk of uh, sets um, set upon it, I suppose. So there's been more opportunity for characters to talk about the nature of magic there than there has been on any other set. So you compare it to like Kaladesh, right? You had two sets. Dominaria has had what? Something like 23, 22 sets. Um, And, you know, so I did a little bit of homework because I'm a big nerd and uh, I have these books. And um from Bloodlines, Bloodlines has a really interesting exchange between uh, Baron and uh, one of his students named Tymon. And this is during the time when Baron is kind of overseeing parts of the Bloodline project, even though he fi- finds it very distasteful. You know, he, it's it's the point in time when, you know, Urza's like, we got to do this because otherwise we're screwed. And who is to argue with him? So Reinhardt, before we even get further into this, yes. for, for for people who haven't been following Magic Story for twenty five plus years, we should give a quick thing on what the Bloodline Project even is. Okay, okay, I can go ahead. The Bloodline <laughs> Project. <laughs> Here we go. The Bloodline Project is a project spearheaded by Urza, uh, nominally 
tinkering with the various family lineages of Dominaria in order to create someone who could uh, control or use or somehow uh, activate what he called the legacy. Um, the legacy being just a bunch of stuff that he put together. It's kind of a weird plan if you really sit down and look at it. But in this case, it was, I mean, let's, let's not, um, let's not bandy about it. It's a formalized eugenic experiment. Um, Magical eugenics. uh, As we're off saying this podcast, Urza was the worst. Yes, magical and, eugenics, so that someone could use his his leftovers from his yard sale that he couldn't sell. Right. I mean, let you know, and and we can we can I then know. say we can then say. I mean, because because I mean, it worked uh, at the end. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was like his backup plan after several other plans right. didn't work. Well, I guess we'll go with this one. But during the so in carrying this project out, he roped in a lot of much nicer people into unwittingly helping him or or wittingly, but reluctantly helping him. And Baron was one of them. Baron was probably the chief of them. Uh, And so Baron was there and Tymon, his student, comes in and he's saying he, he tells him. Uh, Sir, I think there's something wrong with the Bloodline Project. And um, Baron's like, I know. No, Diamond's like, no, seriously. uh, These subjects that you are developing in these test tubes, basically test tube people, um, are are not uh, forming bonds with the land. And basically, he's saying that the Bloodline Project is creating people who do not have mana ties so they don't have the ability to channel mana basically or do magic but the here's something worse about it if you don't have mana ties and you don't have bonds to the land you don't have empathy for anything and that's what timon was kind of saying is like uh it 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 won't work you're going to create like like people who who don't care uh, or or aren't able to relate to other people like this is probably bad. And Baron's like, oh, OK, well, Urza said we have to do it, so we're going to do it. <laughs> um, and so that that kind of talk um, that that exchange included terms like, you know, you know, like time is like, for example, you know, being bound to the wood gives you an affinity for green mana. Being bound to the mountain, I grew up in the mountains, and loving the mountains means you have an affinity for red mana, and so on and so forth. So, in in this is a case where it's very explicit, where they're saying mana is tied to specific parts of land, and we do see this, so you know, a number of places during that era of storytelling, I. I Taya's example story is a perfect example of that. It's a distillation of that. But we see we see these references again and again in different in different pieces of fiction. Uh, I I would say by and large, uh, it's not called out as overtly today as it was in you know in Bloodlines and uh, other uh, like. Uh, other stories of, of past eras, but it's still there from time to time. Yeah. I, I love that. That's one that I hadn't thought about when we we're kind of, I was thinking about this topic and sort of talked about it till you, till you brought it up, Reinhardt, but I'd love that, that idea, the the mechanic that literally is, is mana tied to lands. Again, we're using lands as a game piece to produce you know, the energy we need for our spells in, in a game resource fashion. But I love that idea that, I'd forgotten because I'd, I'd read some of these books. I hadn't read Bloodlines, but I, I read all of the the Gathering Dark, which is one that you mentioned kind of in the notes mm-hmm. too. That um, and and that Ice Age cycle years ago, and I remember them having some mentions of drawing mana from the lands that these people had spent time in, or grew up in, or had experiences in. And so that that mechanic being tied into the actual story is one that I think is I love that. But also, I mean, even if you go back to a Melthos point of view, you look at a card from Alpha Fast Bond. It is like the idea that you're 
generating a quick bond with the land. That's a good yeah. one. <laughs> that's a really good call. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, I think that's super cool, but I also can see where I, you know, you know so we're talking about novels that are novel length story, uh, as opposed to the, the much shorter space that stories is, have these days to, there, there isn't as much room to, uh, throw some extra words at some of these concepts and things like this. I mean, to be fair, it, it, it can be really awkward to bring up because again, like in a practical sense, the players do know these things and it's very, it's very tied to gameplay in a way that you could talk about it mechanically strategy, things like that. You know, I tap for mana. I, I have this many, many mana in my mana pool at this one time I think that the story, this is my conjecture. I think the story team really wants to approach it so it doesn't, doesn't cause this, doesn't cause, uh, like a schism within yourself. Like, wait a second, this is weird. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It just feels weird to have a story with people in it and characters that are, you know, we try to make them as three dimensional as possible. Talk about, using the same words as we do when we're playing a game. Right. I think it's part of it. Yeah, we've gotten more lately, language has shifted more to like talking about pulling mana from the ley lines. And mm-hmm. and that that tends to be more specific towards mages like Nyssa who pull their energy from the plane itself. Uh, and they don't tend to talk about it, you know, where Chandra generates hers from her emotions mostly. Yeah. And, and you have different characters. Magic is described more individual to them. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of like Tamio, like telling stories that cause magical effects. And, and it, it allows them to characterize the characters more specifically. And it's, it's maybe economical in that way. Where you get to know a lot more about, you know, a Chandra and a story that she's in, how based on how she's casting her spells, versus you know is being di- is different than you know somebody else who's in that same story casting their spells in a different way. And I think that's that's those are both points that are really interesting and, and really didn't occur to me. Um, like those, a lot of the older characters who were described as planeswalkers, whether it be um, Urza or Tevisat or Taser, they were ostensibly wizards. But, you know, nowadays, they really have widened the, the, the spectrum of what could be a planeswalker. So, Luca, Luca, I, I don't believe Luca was ever truly, um, Luca described was a as. Pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was never, but he was never really described as a wizard, was he? No, no, he was, he was a, he was a animal control officer. Yeah, yeah, like so, he had powers, and perhaps, uh, perhaps those powers, you know, were augmented by mana, but he didn't like study a spell book or anything. No, <laughs> yeah, or, or cast spells, do anything right. with it in, in a way like that. Any of the stuff he was doing was through manipulating animals or direct brute force. Of So I think that gives a license a little bit to kind of take the, to, you know, to take a little bit more license, general license on how to, you know, how to embody the mana game mechanic uh, into stories yeah no, which i i think it's that's cool but i i do appreciate how the story um why they might have obviously not don't know for sure and the, and the story teams have changed over time it's been different folks sort of working both at wizards and, and writing the stories themselves but um can appreciate probably why some of the reasons at least that we can see and there's probably more that you can't but I do. I'm so glad you brought that because that's such a cool thing. I hadn't even thought of it because that there's so many mechanics like that are sort of invisible in a way. Like we know that's how that works as part of the game, but we don't think about that in universe. Like the concept of tapping something, you know, I, by and large, we think of that as a physical action. We're turning the thing to show that it's used. But I mean, that's, that's a term that goes back long time to like you tap something with, 
with a well or you're tapping, you know, you're, you're pulling something out of a thing. So, you know, if you're tapping a land, you're pulling the energy out of the land to do something with it. And now that land is exhausted. That energy is used. That's why you can't use that land until the next turn. Which even goes back to originally when they had mono and poly artifacts, which is the same idea. You know, mono artifacts, they didn't have the tap symbol on them. You could just only use them once per turn. Yep. Because the idea was that you drain the energy from them for the turn. Yep. That's that. That's another really good call, too. Yeah. And then the later added the tap symbol to them to make that clear that that's what you had to do with them. But yeah. So I did want to mention too, so talking about the colors of magic, one thing I've, I think I've talked about is the Thrawn, when we go at least as far back as the Thrawn, which is, was pretty far back in Dominaris history, they did not have a concept of the colors of mana. And I, I, I'm curious, and maybe you, you would know this, uh, either of you, but if that was sort of that era or if that was more a Thrawn thing because they were so dedicated to artifacts, it kind of didn't matter what the colors of mana were. It all powered the artifacts the same. My my belief is the latter. Yeah, and that, that is also my belief. Yeah, and, and that is because ancient Zalfir was a contemporary of the Thran Empire. And ancient Zalfir did have some measure of magical ability. In fact, they were more advanced than the Thran, but um, we just didn't have a novel about them. Uh, it yeah. would be really cool to have one. <laughs> yeah. And kind of another, you know, modern thing is, I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't even really familiar with the Thran, is they were a super advanced civilization about 6,000 years prior to the current storyline where um, Yogmoth was actually from he was contemporary with the Thrawn and started a civil war and destroyed the civilization and you know uh, it's kind of the whole birth of uh, Phyrexia time frame but they were a heavily um, industrialized civilization had a giant floating city called Halison uh, or Halcyon uh, but everything was powered by power stones uh, which uh, caused magical cancer which they didn't figure out yeah, yeah until so, pretty, pretty late and then they went and talked to Yagmoth about it which was a bad idea and he was still yeah. like a person and not a cloud at the time yeah so, he was still he was still a dude which i mean is awesome and ridiculous <laughs> like that the the Thrawn book is such a it's a fun read, but again, when you slow down and you're like, it's just a dude. How is he getting away with all this? It's really hilarious. But one, uh, Teo is right. Like the it it's a mechanized um, civilization uh, in a way that really I think Dominaria hadn't ever seen before uh, or really since. Um, so they were they heavily used magic without understanding it. You know, they mm-hmm. just knew if they if they stuffed a bunch of energy into these stones, they could then power technology with these stones. Yeah. And I think that's and then they also figured out they could make giant bombs with them as well. Yeah, and, and some of that kind of seeds its way into, into some other sets, particularly stuff with Urza's history. I know there's yeah. a bunch of Thrawn things in the Urza's saga. Versus Destiny, I think some of those sets. Yeah, Thran Dynamo, I think was in there. Um, and but uh, they they did they even though they were heavily heavily artifact based, they did seem to have some measure of, if not understanding, probably not understanding of the different kinds of mana. They did seem to be able to use it. Um, the the Null Moon is probably the the biggest kind of uh, indication for that because it is, it's basically a giant floating white mana battery. And, but it looks like a moon f- because it's, it's in orbit. Um, it's, it's, they a, it's a it to orbit to keep it out of Yagma's hand. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, 
think it's funny that you call it Thrawn Dynamo the much more useful and usable card, Reinhardt, because the one in my head was Thrawn Turbine from that same set. That's mm. just about it. It gives you Coalesce Meta during your upkeep, and then it is gone. Like you have to, you can't use it for spells. <laughs> so wait. <laughs> Oh, wait, so it slowly kills you with the old rules, right? With the old rules. Yeah. yeah, it slowly kills you. <laughs> unless, you have a, unless you can put it into a machine, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was perfect. Oh, my God, that's that's yeah. great. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Also, also great uh, flavor text from that era. Uh, when Urza asked the Viachino what it did, they answered, it hums. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway. But yeah, and then there's uh, just I've just out of curiosity, I punched Thran into Scryfall, and there's a few cards, and it's it's a thing that shows up in a lot of the Dominaria sets too. They like to just throw a, a random thing that just says Thran here, just as a kind of a, a callback to that. And their artifacts are still sort of found and persisting six thousand years later in game. Just that's how many machines and things they built that some of them are still up and running, well into the future. Or maybe some of them are around and people, some of them people are getting back running. Yeah, I mean, the, the mana rig that just, you know, they just exploded at the end of the most, you know, Dominary United was a Thran artifact. Yes. I mean, going, um, Alex, going back to, you know, a little in our conversation, um, you know, I think I think it's pretty clear that at least on Dominaria within certain spheres, um, this knowledge, the knowledge of the colors of mana and basic, the basics of how they work is known. I think a really interesting thing and coming from your examples, especially is, you know, how much is that known uh, in, on other planes, you know, lest we forget Dominaria was once the center of the multiverse. It's not anymore. Although I don't know where it is now, um, so you know which which worlds do you think would be more knowledgeable about it? I feel like it's another one of those. I think you kind of alluded to it either before the recording or on the recording. There's definitely knowledge. He said Dominari definitely has some, but in other places, I think it kind of comes down to certain people who are connected in certain ways. I would say just because. It's big and there's lots of people there. Ravnica is a city world. There's going to be a critical mm-hmm. mass of people who are going to be more knowledgeable about. I mean, that's that's a whole point of some of these guilds is just experimenting on stuff. And so you're you're in a society where you're you get enough people crammed together, you can start to get to a point where a, some number can make enough food so that not everybody has to make food all the time. That's just kind of how. That is one of the big benefits of, of having a city. And so Ravnica is going to be a place where there's lots of people who can pursue things that aren't strictly survival. Lots of planes have that, but I think Ravnica probably has a higher level of that. And then, of course, you'll have things like, especially with the guilds, um, that's a place where there probably is larger public understanding of the five colors, simply because you have the balance between all the guilds, as, as you were talking about earlier, Taya. I think that would probably do it. Random Joe citizen may not quite understand all of those details, but they probably have more of those pieces than on any other plane. And then you'll have folks like Niv Mizzet who probably understand most or all of that, uh, of those details for being an old dragon who's been experimenting on stuff. And then also whatever. I I would would expect that on a plane like Ravnica, like a magic theory one oh one class has an understanding of the five colors of magic. Yeah. So it's, it's probably a, large portion of the educated folks. Yeah. A larger portion than you'd have on most other places. Um, Arcavios being another one where I think it's just part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Um, one of the few planes that's really aware of other planes and the fact that, you know, you have planeswalkers as teachers. And yeah. yeah, that might change in the near future. That would be interesting yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see how that goes. Uh if we you know, whenever we get a return to Strixhaven. Uh but we've got a 
yeah. you know, I, I'd assume that we get some some kind of understanding there. And yeah, I mean, and and Strixhaven has so how in fiction was that? Um, what was it called? Sort of the the extra treatment where they had all those spells in the Strixhaven packs from all these oh, different Oh, the Mystical Archive. Mystical yeah, Archive. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, you know, I mean, like, the fiction was hinted at that these are all spells that are in the, in the Great Library. Right, right, okay. right. The, the Biblioplex. The Biblioplex, yeah. The repository of any, uh, any spell that had been cast uh, in the entire multiverse. Okay, so which you, makes it a very dangerous place, actually. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm thinking of some of those legendary spells from Dominaria that are uh, be a little little dangerous to just have sitting in a library. I mean, you know, you could you can do a lot. You know, spells that must be in there if it's every spell is the Elder yeah. spell, yeah, Obliterate. Uh, spell. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and and like. What was Fralys' spell that broke the Ice Age? The world spell? Oh, the world spell. Yeah. That's that's an interesting idea. <laughs> Whichever board wipe Obnixilus used to wipe out his home world. Oh, yeah. I think he did it the old-fashioned way, one by one. <laughs> yeah. It was a planeswalker at the time. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> Would say that supports, but it's just gives a lot more capacity to do whatever nonsense he wanted to be doing. I think another twist on on like the different mana is how creatures, you know, like we have the the card cost, the the cost, the mana cost for creatures, and and what may or may what might that say about them? Does it should we read? everything into that is, is that just a, a kind of a rendering of who they are in the, as a game piece like it's really interesting to think yeah. I, it's something that i've thought about just about different characters when i when i they've been handed to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's an interesting idea is it is it obviously from a from a gameplay standpoint there's a lot of game balancing that goes into it and that's where even set to set you'll have a the same function has a different cost, but that's interesting and interesting, especially from a creature standpoint, is it like more mana because it requires more to pull it to you? Not necessarily because it's more powerful. Yeah, it's, I think you can look at the cards from the Lord of the Rings set and really, really ask some of those questions because you have the same character represented multiple times with vastly different costs or color identities. That is an interesting idea. And that's yeah. something that that I think they've done more and more with, is try to uh, give cards, uh, creature cards, to the same character multiple times in a single set to kind of show passage through time, growth through time, something like that. Yeah, and you know, in sets where that makes sense, I think it's it's pretty, it's an interesting technique where it's like in Brothers War, it made a lot of sense too, because it's a set that was covering, you know, a long period in ancient history plus a, a period of modern history all in one set. So having multiple versions of the same legends in the set made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that is a topic we've we've talked about some, but it pro- there's probably more there to dig into because it is interesting, both the over the time thing, how, how people shift, but also there's ju- just the the concept that a, any given person is, is a multitude. I mean, that's just people and, and the car, a given card is kind of representing a person in that snapshot, not just that snapshot of time, but perhaps that like what they're doing. And even within that time, maybe their color balance would be a little different if they were at home or at work or, you know, on the battlefield, literally like in not the, just a game mechanic thing, but you, that's an interesting concept, especially the, the Lord of the Rings set. I, I hadn't thought about looking at the, looking at the different printings of those legends in that way um, within that set, which I've now pulled up on a tab to do after we're done recording at some point. Yeah, um, for the people, um, they're probably not listening to this podcast anyways, but if you're mad about Black Aragon, um, you know, too bad. 
Well, I think that that's um, the rings is not a magic story. I think that's actually a very unique and, and good kind of benchmark, right? Like you can see, you could pick apart um, the concepts of the colors um, because, you know, like it's an out, it's an outside force, right? It's, you could pick apart the concept of like, how does green apply to these characters? How does mm-hmm. white apply to these characters? Red, and so on. You know, is it? You could you could ask. Oh, is it consistent to how they're depicted? Is it because they have diff, uh, the same abilities that they're both? You know, uh, red, white. You know, it's it, and that's like I think that's a fun exercise. It's it's cool to see that, um, but it actually can elicit like oh some insight because they're not magic characters, and so. Because the cards kind of shape who the is in a really interesting way, um, you know, it, it shapes how we perceive the characters both in the game and the story, but it also shapes how how the writers perceive them. Oh, you know, Chandra, Sh- Chandra is always red, <laughs> so there's a certain way you picture her, and a certain way she's she's rendered in art. And a certain way, she you you believe that she might act in a certain time, or, or you know, um, given a certain stimulus. So, like, I think it's what's cool is the Lord of the Rings actually can show us a little bit more, can shed a little bit more insight on how the colors might be coordinated. Yeah, and that that's a good point too. Thinking about how the story and the cards in a normal Magic set are are built separately um in recent years it's it's a it's a closer they they have better ideas and they've been making the game for a long time so they're they're better at at what they're doing but way you know way way back in the day you'd get so many significant characters that never show up in cards because the story was written so far after but even to today you're still going to have things where there's like green you know they're going to have a card designed and maybe the mechanics aren't set on it but they're going to know this is a green legendary creature if that fits someone that's in the story cool if not we have to make up a new character and so you're going to have characters sort of get color identities by the mechanics to some degree as well or they're going to know we don't have room for this many blue planeswalkers or whatever, because we know Chase is here, we know this character's here, we know that character's here. This other planeswalker can't be blue, just from a game balance standpoint. Right, and I do think that probably you know determines who shows up in stories a lot of the times is just mechanically who's gonna who fits in the set, and you know that'll determine who's actually going to show up in the story. Yeah, I think the designers, I think. I remember reading some of Mark Rosewater's articles. He indicated that, you know, that can play a role in, you know, that they'll say, oh, you know, XYZ person can't uh, appear in here because we're way too overloaded on, on green, green planeswalkers or green legendaries. But could someone else appear here, you know, and then, and then story and design can work that way. At least that's, that's what I've read. Which makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's really, I mean, why not? I, more vo- more voices make it a better story and a, and a better experience. I think, you know, uh, insights can be gleaned from all sorts of sources. All right. I think we're, we're kind of getting to the end of this. Do, do you have, either of you have anything more you, you kind of want to add to this, this topic? No, I just want to, you know, Reinhardt noted a lot of other color um references in our notes and I think we could go on those for yeah. another while. <laughs> yeah, we we could go a long time. <laughs> we could yeah. go a long time on this. And you know, you had some really good notes and I did just want to say thank you for doing some prep on this and I appreciate that we've gotten to talk about this. Uh, always love having uh this level of detail and um, love having you on the podcast and talking about this because you always bring this, you know, this deep knowledge that is great to have on the show. Oh, it's, it's my, my pleasure. And it's just great fun for me to, to talk about this stuff. And, uh, 
I love doing research. So it was it was just a lot of fun to like go through some of these books and be like, oh, there there's another example. All right. You know, and and, you know, I, I invite uh, all the listeners, you know, grab if you happen to have some magic um, novels or want to read through some magic fiction you'll find that, you know, you'll find references in the weirdest places. Like, you know, I found some from, from fifth dawn where Glissa is talking about, um, you know, be, having affinity for green uh, mana because she's from the tangle and that the moon uh, is made of pure green mana in, in, in that case. And that's, I'm like, wow, you know, even, even on Mirrodin, they were, they were talking about that stuff or, there's the, I mean, <clears throat> you could even go to War of the Spark itself, the War of the Spark novel, and there are there are very few, but there are some instances where specific colored mana is is uh, is remarked about. Um, so the traces of that stuff is still there, and I think you know, um, as um, the as the fiction will go on. I'm sure there will be more. I mean, it's one of the most unique aspects of the magic multiverse is the magic system. And the magic system is really, really, really cool. And, and anyone who can uh, try and pick up the, uh, the Ice Age novels, so The Gathering Dark, Eternal Ice, Shattered Alliance, and read those through. And that's that's like a course. Like, you that gives everything you need to know about the depths of at least the depths of the in world understanding of the color pie. Um, So, and, and they're great fun. Jeff Grubb is a wonderful, wonderful author. Yeah. And also go read the Felton story. That one's free online. Also Jeff Grubb. I will see if we can find that and get that in the show notes. We'll uh, talk to Hobbs and see if we can get that in there. All right. Well, I think that does it for this week. Thank you, Taya. Thank you, Reinhard, for for coming and doing all that research. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, and, remember uh, to send in your sound bites. We want to feature you on uh, our fifth anniversary episode. Yep, absolutely. And that'll be coming in the in the coming weeks. We'll probably throw something on Twitter and um and our Discord. If you are interested in joining, our Discord is free. There's a channel or two that's that's for patrons but most of it is available to everybody there's lots of good conversations there and we'll be sharing more details about that stuff there everybody have a good night and that's our show for today you can find all of the hosts on twitter for now Hobbs can be found at Hobbs Q Taya can be found at Taya Transcends and Alex can be found at Mel underscore Chronicler feel free to send us any questions comments, thoughts, hopes and dreams to the Goblin Lord Pod on twitter or email us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support your friendly neighborhood gobslugs, our link tree can be found on our Twitter account and in the description of today's show. This has everything from various discount codes to the link for our Patreon. The music for today's show was by Vintergotten, who can be found at Vintergotten at bandcamp.com. The art was done by Stephen Raphael, who can be found at Steve Raffle on Twitter. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Hipsters of the Coast, as part of their growing Vorthos content. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.